Testament. Acts 12, 25 through 13, 12. And because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to your feet to hear from the God who does indeed still speak to his people in his word. Acts 12, beginning in verse 25. Luke wrote as he was carried along by the spirit of God these words. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished At the teaching of the Lord, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. If you have been with us throughout our journey through the book of Acts, you may remember that Acts begins with heaven receiving Christ as king over heaven and earth. That is, it begins with the ascension of the Lord Jesus. And we're told throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, actually, that this signals Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Well, the rest of the book of Acts tells the story of the church making Christ known through the bold proclamation of the gospel empowered by the Spirit of God. Additionally, the church's proclamation of the gospel is at times, though not always, at times accompanied by visible demonstrations of Christ's authority. For example, 
In Acts chapter 3, as Peter and John were entering the temple in Jerusalem, they came upon a crippled man who was begging alms. In fact, Luke tells us that this was a man who had been crippled from birth. And the man requests from Peter and John for alms. And Peter responded to the man, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then the man, of course, was instantly healed and he began walking and leaping and praising God. Additionally, in Acts chapter 5, just to highlight a few of these, when Ananias and Sapphira attempted to deceive the apostles into believing that they were generously giving all the proceeds from the sale of their property to serve the church and to support those in need, when they attempted to deceive the apostles and, of course, lied to the Holy Spirit, they dropped dead under divine judgment. Right there on the spot, signaling, of course, in a terrifying fashion that Jesus reigned over heaven and earth and he was not to be lied to, especially among his people or by those who lived among and worshiped among his people. Last week, we observed how Christ miraculously rescued the apostle Peter, invisibly it seemed, from jail and really maximum security under Herod, Herod had, of course, taken the life of James, the apostle, the first apostle, who had given his life in service to the gospel and submission to Jesus Christ. And Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he had Peter arrested, doubtless, for the purpose of executing Peter, and he put him into jail. And this, of course, was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you were with us last Lord's Day, perhaps you will recall. And he intended, after Passover, to bring Peter out publicly and potentially execute Peter However, <clears throat> the Lord rescued Peter from the hand of Herod by sending an angel and Peter's chains fell off thinking that he was seeing a vision. He was escorted all the way through a series of guards and through a closed locked iron gate. The gate opened, of course, as it were, it appeared autonomously and then he stood out on a street and he came to himself after the angel had disappeared, recognizing that indeed this was the work of God and it had actually happened. It was no vision after all. Even King Herod did not exercise authority over the risen and ascended King Jesus. And so this is a theme throughout the book of Acts. It begins with Christ's ascension. Heaven receives Christ. Christ takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, and he reigns over heaven and earth. In fact, you may recall that the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, before Jesus gives this great commission, as it's referred to, he gives the foundation for the great commission, which is what all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So it's Christ's cosmic, universal, unparalleled, and unimpeded authority that drives the church to boldly proclaim Christ. And this is massive throughout the book of Acts. Additionally, we've learned if you've been with us, and if not, this is perhaps just new information. Christ's authority is not a localized authority. We've said this a couple of times, but just to highlight the reality, it's not confined merely to Jerusalem. And it's not confined to a particular people group. 
It's not confined to the Jewish people who trust in Jesus. Rather, it extends beyond the Jewish people throughout the world to various Gentiles, non-Jewish people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen this pattern throughout the book of Acts. And we'll continue to see this pattern until the conclusion of the book of Acts, which actually concludes with the Apostle Paul, who is preaching the gospel in Rome. And it's an indication, of course, as it were, for the church to continue preaching this glorious gospel of King Jesus who has died and been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and will someday return, continue preaching this gospel until the return of Jesus Christ. And you and I are a part of this. So the book of Acts really is a kind of beginning to to our story to the story of the church and various local churches which are local expressions of a universal reality declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ doing what he promised to do, build his church, rescue sinners, and give life to those who were dead. Now, on the one hand, our text, Acts chapter 12, verse 25 through 13, 12, is not that different from What we have already seen and and even what I've just summarized. Christ continues to demonstrate his authority through the bold proclamation of the gospel. And in our text, he grants a particular sign and a demonstration. And we'll get to that here in just a few moments. So in that sense, it's not unique. We've seen this if you've been with us throughout Acts. And perhaps if you've not been, been with us, you may remember that Acts is filled with these kinds of examples. God's people preaching Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, and of course, God granting as he sees fit these accompanying signs, confirmations. On the other hand, our text represents what will become standard practice for the church until the present. Standard practice for the spread of the gospel throughout the world. So let's highlight this by summarizing the text. I'm going to do this and then I'll give you our outline. Some of you are waiting with bated breath for our outline. But we're going to get there. We'll get there in just a moment. Here's a summary of the text as a whole. All right, I'm going to read this to you. You can jot this down if you like or you can just log it away. We'll unpack this as we walk through the text. Here's a brief summary. Christ exhibits his universal authority. How? By sending missionaries through the church. Now that's what marks a kind of change and what becomes a standard. So go back. Christ exhibits his universal authority. How? By sending missionaries through the church who boldly proclaim his word with accompanying demonstrations of his power to rescue some from spiritual deception. Now, not all of you are writing that down, but some of you are. And if I don't repeat it again, I'm going to be in trouble. So I'm going to repeat it one more time, all right? One more time. This is just a summary, a kind of thesis, perhaps, for the morning. Christ exhibits his universal authority by sending missionaries through the church who boldly proclaim his word with accompanying demonstrations of his power to rescue some from spiritual deception. So our text is unique because it represents, and don't miss this, the first 
official sending of missionaries through the local church. In fact, up to the present, many churches have used this text as kind of the catalyst for sending missionaries. Missionaries often look to this text as the beginning point, not of missionary activity. We've seen that since the fall. But the beginning point of God sending missionaries by means of the local church filled with the Spirit of God, this text becomes the foundation for that practice And so in that sense, this is a unique text. And the very first missionaries who were sent, by the way, were two people. Who were they? Barnabas and Saul, right? Or Paul. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Barnabas and and Saul. Well, here we go. We're going to walk through this text by making three observations. Ah, Now you can breathe, right? Feels right. Everything's right in the world. Three observations. Um, uh, we can, I'm going to summarize them with one word and then I'll, just, I'll go back just a bit. There is ascending. Ascending. There is secondly a showdown. And there is thirdly a salvation. Ascending, a showdown, and a salvation. So first we're going to find the sending of Paul and Barnabas. The sending of Paul and Barnabas. Second, we will discover The showdown between Paul and a man named Elymas. You could call him Bar-Jesus, if you like. A couple of different names that are used in the text. And then third, in addition to the sending of Barnabas and Paul and the showdown between Paul and Elymas, third, we find the salvation of the proconsul, which is another word for a kind of governor or leader. A man named Sergius Paulus. You don't have to remember that if you don't like. Young worshipers, a couple of things for you. And so, by the way, just as a reminder to all of you, and perhaps news for those of you who are visiting, um, we encourage our young people in the room to get into the text with us. They're not here to check out and do other things. They're here to engage with us. And so, one of the ways we do that is we provide a couple of questions for them to follow along. Parents, grandparents, feel free to talk to your children during the sermon. I tell our congregation on a regular basis, I'm going to assume you're talking about the glories of Christ in the text, okay? And so feel free to do that. Um, Here are a couple of questions, younger worshipers, I want you to be able to answer. First, who sent Barnabas and Paul? That is a trick question. Who sent Barnabas and Paul, all right? Second, I'll give you a little hint, by the way. A couple of answers to that first question. A couple of answers. And we'll talk about it. Don't worry. Second, what happened to Elymas the magician? In the end, what ends up happening to Elymas the magician? And we'll talk about that when we get there. Let's begin by looking together at our first observation, the sending of Barnabas and Paul. In verse 1 We are exposed again, if you've been with us, exposed again to the diversity of this local church. This is the church in Antioch. And what a tremendous church this is, this church in Antioch. And Luke begins by informing us that there were five prophets or teachers in in the church. By the way, I take prophets and teachers to be a way of kind of referring to a single function here in the text. There's debate about this. Maybe I'm wrong. That's fine. (laughs) 
Some say I'm not. Amen. I don't think I'm wrong. Otherwise, I wouldn't hold to the opinion, right? Uh, I think prophets and teachers here are really a kind of single function. Uh, Prophecy emphasizing that these are people that were speaking revelation from God to the people of God for edification of the church. And teaching being another kind of facet of this, teaching being instruction from and about the word of God for the edification of the church. Okay? So that's what's happening in the text. We'll see this continue to function in the early church. These are prophets slash teachers, prophet teachers as it were. Now consider the diversity of these of these men, this list. Saul is one of them. Saul's background was pharisaical. He's a Jew. Trained as a Pharisee. All right? Simeon and Lucius. Where were they from? They're from Africa. One of them called Niger, which is from a Latin word meaning black. So Simeon and Lucius are from Africa. A Cyrene, by the way, is North Africa. Menaean was from the upper echelon of society. How do we know that? Because he grew up, the language that's used here to describe him is that he grew up with Herod. Herod the Tetrarch. Now, the Herods get a little confusing here. Uh, we talked about this in community group, my community group last Lord's Day. Uh, this is Herod Antipas, not Herod Agrippa. This is not the Herod who killed James in Acts chapter 12. This is the Herod prior to that Herod, okay? A little confusing, but it's beside the point. I don't think that's Luke's primary purpose. His purpose is to show you that Christ is rescuing people from all classes, all groups. So you have this, you have this person named Menaean who grew up, was raised alongside Herod. And now he loves the Lord Jesus. And he's one of the prophet teachers in Antioch. And then you have Barnabas, who also was a Jew from Cyprus. So you've, you've got a couple of these Jewish people and probably a few Gentiles and a tremendous amount of diversity. Remember, Antioch is a diverse church. On what basis then are these people gathering together? On the basis of a shared ethnicity? Absolutely not. On the basis of a shared hobby? Certainly not. On the basis of a similar socioeconomic status, absolutely not. On what basis do these men and, of course, broadly, the church in Antioch, men and women and children gather together? It is exclusively on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of unity to which the book of Acts calls us church. It's the kind of unity this world simply cannot understand. And it's the kind of unity and harmony that we would never have experienced apart from Christ. When a church can look around the room and share faith in the gospel and share commitment and allegiance to King Jesus and go together and proclaim Christ and bear burdens and forgive one another and walk alongside of one another and rejoice with one another and weep with one another, when that can happen and they can look around the room, we can look around the room and say, you know what, if it weren't for Christ, I wouldn't even be friends with these people. That's gospel unity. 
I remember having a conversation with someone years ago and, and coming to the realization, you know what, many of, many of the people I'm closest to, I'm so very confident that if I didn't know the Lord and they didn't know the Lord, we would never spend any time together. That gets close to what is happening in the church as Christ is tearing down the dividing walls of partition and building this eternal people called the body of Christ. And as Patrick Schreiner, who's one, one commentator, as he helpfully observed, this diverse church is being instructed by diverse leadership. Schreiner says diverse leadership is a key to a diverse church, and I, I think that's valid and helpful as an observation in this text. <clears throat> now notice that the Holy Spirit spoke in the context of, of corporate worship. As we move through this text and as we're talking about what ends up being the sending of Barnabas and Paul, I want you to notice the context. They are gathering for worship. Luke writes in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now, by the way, it's possible that this is just the leaders that are gathered together and worshiping the Lord and fasting. I don't think it's likely. And the reason I don't think it's likely is just the way Acts continues to to present the church gathered together. There really is nothing in this text in particular. I think it's just the way Luke has led us. We are to be uh, led down this path of understanding that when people are gathered together, it's not just leaders. It's, it's leaders and those who are not leaders in the church, believers in Jesus Christ gathered together for worship. So I would suggest that it's assumed. Here, Luke writes in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so this is instructive for us as believers. One of the contexts out of which and through which the Spirit of God speaks is corporate worship. This shouldn't surprise you. After all, you're here. I, I suspect it's one of the reasons why many of you are in the room. Not all of you, but many of you. You haven't come to hear Perry Wax eloquent. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> if so, you're going to be greatly displeased. <clears throat> You've come to hear from the God who still speaks to his people when his people gather. That's why you've come. You've come because you believe that, that God speaks by means of his word and he chooses, he chooses to use even at times human instruments to do so. Thank God. Broken, frail human instruments are utilized as instruments in the hands of a redeemer. And that's precisely what happens in the text. Now, we're not told details. How did the Holy Spirit speak? Set apart Barnabas and Saul. I, I don't have any idea. I have no idea. The text doesn't tell us. But somehow they recognized the voice of the Spirit. And it happened in the context of worship. The context of corporate worship. And this instructs us. So, 
So hear me, brothers and sisters, hear me. Come every week. And even in the smaller context, when you gather together as a community group, perhaps even this evening, or you gather together in in various Sunday school classes, or you gather together in a D group with just a handful of others who are gathering around the word of God to talk about the gospel, expect God to speak by means of his word to his people gathered for worship. Now, look with me at verses 3 and 4. We'll keep going. 3 and 4, the first part of verse 4, where Luke tells us, who is responsible for sending Barnabas and Saul? Now, younger worshipers, this is that trick question. Okay? Pass or fail? I'm kidding. You'll be just fine. And by the way, you can always come up to me after the service and ask about these things if you'd like. I'd love to hear from you. So here's, here's what Luke says, verse 3, and then the first part of verse 4. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. Who were, who, who's the them? Barnabas and Saul. So they laid their hands on, on Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them off, the ESV reads. That's, that's the translation from which I read a moment ago. Other translations opt for something else. But here, sent them off. We'll come back to that. Verse 4. So... Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Which is it? Did the church send Barnabas and Saul off? Or did the Holy Spirit send Barnabas and Saul off? Well, in some sense, the answer is yes. In some sense. However, the language used of the church here, they sent them off. Uh, could be translated, these are different verbs, which, by the way, that happens for stylistic reasons. We do this. Um, I, I can say in the same, the same breath, I, I deeply love my wife. I have a tremendous amount of affection for her. I've said the same thing in two different ways, just for stylistic diversity, okay? That happens, that happens in the text. Sometimes we really look for some diversity and we think there's, there's tremendous uh, import there. And I think at times it's stylistic, But here I do think there's something being implied because the verb that's used for the church, sending off Barnabas and Saul, actually, if I were translating this as I do early in the week, I translated this released. The church released them. Let them go. However, the verb that's used for the Holy Spirit in the next verse, verse 4, part A, is more directly sent. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, you see? So in this sense, it's the spirit who sends, it's the church who releases. Now you can say the spirit sends through the church, that's fine, that's fine. But ultimately we're to understand that it's the spirit of God who's sending Barnabas and Saul and it's the church cooperating as it were and serving as the sending agent in releasing Barnabas and Saul. I love, I love this idea because as a parent, to be honest, I thought about it as a parent. We should think about it as a church as well. Think with me for just a moment. When the Spirit of God calls some from among us to go, I can't think of a more vivid reminder that none of the people in this room belong to us as a church than that. As a, as a father, I can't think of a more vivid reminder that my, my children who are growing up now, I mean, I, uh, 
I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son. And then I have a 10-year-old son. But I can't think of any more vivid reminder than for one of them to come to me and then come to the church and say, I, I, I feel like the Spirit of God is calling me to go. Go where? Go, go around the world. Go somewhere else. Sell everything I have to go live among a people group who need to hear the gospel. I can't think of, of any more vivid reminder to me as a parent that my children don't belong to me than that. And that it's for me to do what? Release. And I got to tell you, can I just be frank? Can I, is this here, confession, okay? I got to tell you, this week, as I thought about this, I was humbled because I considered how there's a part of me that is thrilled about the possibility of one of my children potentially going somewhere else in the world to preach Christ where Christ is unknown. And it terrifies me. Okay, that's confession. But, as a great missionary said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May God give us grace as a church when the Spirit of God calls our best and brightest, phrase that gets used sometimes, in the missions movement, the more modern missions movement, when God calls our best and brightest, may God give us the grace to say, go and release them in the name of Christ. Hmm. I think that was for me as much as anyone else in this room. So, Barnabas and Saul were sent by the Spirit, but they were sent through the church. And that becomes a standard practice, and properly so. As an aside, and here I'm going to keep doing asides, and it's going to be, we're going to be out of time, and we're going to be in point one. And I'll be back next Lord's Day, if the Lord wills, and we'll keep going. It's one of the benefits of exposition, by the way, just a plug for expository preaching. Um, I'm not even sure what I was saying. Yes, I remember now. When, when we talk about being sent by the Holy Spirit through the church, I, I'm, th this is one of the reasons why I'm a bit suspicious and even hesitant of, of hearing from a brother or a sister who's no part of a church uh, saying, well, God has sent me. God sent me to go, whatever, uh, plant a church or be a missionary. Um, I, I think a valid question to ask. Can God do that? Look, I'm not saying God can't do that and doesn't do that. I'm saying that the normative way God does it from this point on is just consistently through the church. When I hear that, though, I get concerned. I get concerned that this is a brother or a sister that desperately needs the loving, gracious accountability of a local church. And, and so I would encourage anyone who, who feels compelled to go, go to your church with it. And if you don't have a church and you trust in Christ, you need to get in the church. 
Because it's when the church is gathered and when the church is praying and when the church is fasting and when the church is worshiping that the Spirit of God consistently speaks to his people. Trust the God who oversees the church. I'm not asking you to put your trust in human authorities fundamentally. I'm asking you to put your trust in the God who promises to speak by means of these human authorities, in particular through the church. Okay? All right. That's the aside. So, Barnabas and Saul were sent by the Spirit through the church in Antioch. Second, second observation, the showdown between Paul and Elymas. And we'll make our way through some of these details fairly quickly. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. So we have the sending of Barnabas and Saul. Now we have the showdown between Paul and Elymas. And a shift begins to happen now. It's not... From this point on, it's not going to be Barnabas and Saul. It's going to be Paul and Barnabas. And we'll look at that. We'll see that as we come across it in the text. Verses 4 and 5 in chapter 13. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And by the way, the rest of the details now in our text are on Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. He's just going to mention a couple of places, including the capital of Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is the John Mark that we will continue to see in the book of Acts, and we've already seen even in the previous chapter. So Barnabas and Saul were sent to proclaim the message of Christ, which is precisely what they did. They arrived, and what did they do? The very first thing that Luke records they did is they proclaimed the word of God to the Jews who were in the synagogues, and this would become their custom. On what basis? Well, this is, this is the chronology of gospel proclamation. So Paul will say in Romans 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so this is the way it works. Paul will go on these missionary journeys. He'll find the synagogue. He'll go into the synagogue. He'll proclaim Christ. They will generally reject Christ, though not, exclusive, though, though not comprehensively. Some will embrace the gospel. And then he will go on to preach Christ to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And then much of the rest of our text is given to this face-off that occurs between Barnabas and Saul and a particular Jewish magician, which is a bit unfortunate uh, as, a, as a title, as a term. Don't think of magician in, in, in a kind of sleight of hand and trickery approach. Someone who's on a stage, you know. Someone who has a card trick. That's not what this is. This is, this is more closely akin to a witch doctor, for example. Um, a kind of sorcerer. There are real supernatural spirits at work, in other words. And that's assumed in the text. And you may remember that, that the context here in Acts is reminiscent of the book of Exodus. And you may also recall that Moses and Aaron, who were sent to Pharaoh, were opposed by whom? Pharaoh's magicians. Or sorcerers. You may also recall, and if you don't, that's okay. Um, I share this on a regular basis. I, much of this I didn't even learn well into my adult life. Um, you may also recall that these sorcerers or magicians in Egypt performed supernatural signs. 
imitating the real thing. And that's probably what's happening here, something along those lines. This is a face-off. And this is, this is Paul or Saul against Elymas, but more ultimately, this is King Jesus against the false gods represented in Elymas. Spoiler alert, it's no match at all. There's no tug of war taking place. Christ actually is sovereign, not in the sense that he's stronger, though he is, in the sense that he's also sovereign over elements, over his actions, and so forth. So, topic for another day. Notice verses 6 through 8. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which just means son of Jesus. Ironic. Son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this proconsul, the governor, wanted to hear from Barnabas and Saul. But Elymas, verse 8, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name. By the way, Elymas means probably something like wisdom. Again, some irony here. He's not wise, and he's not a son of Jesus. Elymas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, it's not incidental that Elymas is a Jewish sorcerer. Why is that not incidental? Because God expressly prohibited the practice of sorcery or magic in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 for the people of Israel. Additionally, now don't miss this bit. The Jewish people were supposed, they were supposed to serve as a light to the nations, Isaiah 49. They were supposed to serve to expose the nations to the truth, but here... This Jewish leader, false prophet, sorcerer, is serving to obscure the truth and to blind the nations. Again, we're reminded of what it means to be truly a Jew, to be found in Christ. It's, it's Paul and Barnabas who are truly of Israel. In the way that Paul speaks in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, I was privileged uh, recently to participate in a conversation with a brother. Uh, Brett, actually. Pastor Brett set this up. Good friend of Brett's. I just met him. And uh, he spent decades taking the gospel to unreached people groups. Decades. Am I right, brother? I don't think I'm exaggerating this. Um, shout if I've, if I've mistaken any of the details. But our international sending agency, the IMB, uh, defines unreached people groups for us. So he's he's spent decades attempting to reach unreached people groups. Unreached is not a synonym for unsaved. Here's what unreached means according to the IMB. I think it's a helpful definition. Those among whom Christ is largely unknown and the church is relatively insufficient to make Christ known. 
In other words, these aren't merely unsaved people. These are people who will live and die and likely never have the opportunity to hear the gospel, meet a Christian, or attend a church. The church is relatively insufficient in the areas, and so these are groups that are categorized as unreached people groups. And there are countless numbers of them. This, this brother who has been serving among unreached people groups in the, in the Philippines, elsewhere as well, but in the Philippines, he went on to describe two of them, two of the people groups that were unreached. Because he said unreached people groups are usually unreached for a reason. I remember that statement, brother. He said they're usually unreached for a reason. And he said that these two people groups were unreached largely because of the deception of a local cult. So each one of the islands had this local cult and this local cult had a grip on the people and was serving to blind them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, I say that to say this is similar, I think, to what's happening in the text. Cyprus is an island. And Elymas represents a kind of local cult. And what is so bizarre is he's Jewish. It should be the opposite. And he's serving to obscure the truth. He's opposing Barnabas and Saul. And he's blinding the eyes of Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. And doubtless many others. This is a standoff. And this is an unreached people group. At that time. And the power. The power of Elymas and ultimately. The power we see exercised. In men like Elymas by the way is. Is not in himself but it is in a real enemy. Referred to in various ways throughout scripture, the devil, Satan, the dragon, the beast, so on and so forth, the serpent. But Elymas is no match for Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. 9 and 10. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now don't miss that. He's filled with the Spirit. Elymas, we're going to see, is filled with deceit and villainy and so forth. Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, now how about this? How about this for an altar call? You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness. Full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? For the first time here, Saul is called Paul. And then from this point on, he's referred to exclusively by his Greek name, Paul. Not Saul, his Hebrew name. There are a number of potential reasons for this. I tend to think that it probably has something to do with the church spreading to the Gentile world and Paul being instrumental in this. So he's called Paul, not Saul from this point on. And then verse 11, look with me. After this confrontational statement. By the way, this is, this is the Spirit of God working through Paul, but it's also Paul. If Barnabas were the one speaking, it probably would have read a little bit differently than this. Same truth, but probably a little different. Son of encouragement would have spoken these words a bit differently. 
But we needed Paul to speak. The Spirit of God chose to use Paul, and he spoke with boldness. Verse 11, he continues. Paul says, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, against you, heavy over you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. You've blinded others. God is going to take away your sight like that. And immediately, Luke records it this way, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. In other words, he started feeling for others, asking for assistance. He's no power and he's no match for King Jesus You see, the Holy Spirit did not merely send Paul and Barnabas to this island. He empowered them to exercise authority over false gods and spiritual powers in the name of Christ. This is what he does when he sins. This is what he does. And this is why consistently we are told in Scripture not to fear false gods. And by the way, the text never tells us don't fear false gods because they don't exist. This is a Massive conversation. False gods don't exist as gods, but according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they exist as evil spirits, demons. They exist. The text never tells us don't fear them because they don't exist. It says don't fear them because they're not God. They have no authority over Christ. And so you can go boldly and proclaim the gospel knowing knowing that you're going to have the joy of seeing in time as the Lord sees fit, the joy of seeing some come to know Christ and be set free from slavery to these so-called gods which are no God at all. It was not the wit of Paul, okay, that did this. It was not the winsomeness of Barnabas that caused this. It was the power of Christ through them. So you're not as witty as Paul may have been. You don't have the academic pedigree that this Pharisee turned Christian had. Fine. You're not as winsome and and kind. You're not the son of encouragement as Barnabas was. Fine. Do you have the treasure of the gospel in a jar of clay. You're the jar, not the treasure. It is for you simply by the power of the Spirit of God to share the treasure. It's really that simple. And to do so boldly with tremendous confidence that Christ is exercising his supreme authority over heaven and earth until he comes. And then makes this kingdom visible and apparent forever. Finally, I do need to wrap up. We'll do this. Our last point. It's brief. It's one verse. I keep looking at Pastor Brett. Don't know why. I just connected with him earlier and here we go. Finally, in addition to the sending of Barnabas and Paul and the showdown, the showdown between Paul and Elymas, I want you to observe the salvation of the proconsul It gets sweet here. Chapter 13, verse 12. What happened to him? 
Elemis the magician is blinded for a time. We don't know how long. He's blinded. And that's the end of the story and the text for him. But then the proconsul, verse 12, what? Believed. When he saw what had occurred, now don't miss this. Don't miss this. When he saw what had occurred, here's the explanation. For he was astonished at what? The sign? The blinding of Elymas astonished him. He was amazed at this miracle. He was enthralled and infatuated at this supernatural occurrence. No, no, it's not what the text says. Notice, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I hope that encourages you. It does me. It's really that simple. In other words, he was astonished at the proclamation of the gospel. The message of Christ. And one of the reasons the Holy Spirit had sent Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus was to share Christ with this man who would believe the gospel by the grace of God. The Spirit was going to call this man to himself. And that's why, that's why the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called him. And as I've mentioned, the blinding of Elymas, though it served as an instrument, it did. And breaking down the barriers that were erected, the barriers called spiritual deception, as it were. And this demonstrated Christ's authority and power. It was the gospel. It was the gospel. It was the teaching of the Lord that the Spirit used to draw this governor to Christ in faith. Friends, Christ may or may not exercise signs and wonders through you. He never has through me that I know of. And I know, you know, you're like, well, you want to qualify that. Oh, sure he has, Pastor. I'm sure, if you want to qualify. But I'm not one that has all the stories about when I go preach Christ, look, there are sick people that are instantly healed and dead people are raised and people with short arms are growing longer arms. None of that, okay? The Lord could do it if he wants to do it. He has authority to do it. His authority is universal, unchallenged, practically speaking. No, but what I have is the gospel. I have the teaching of the Lord. I have the same teaching, and you have the same teaching that Paul and Barnabas had. The same teaching they shared with Elymas the same teaching they shared with Sergius Paulus. And it's the same teaching by which this proconsul, this governor, came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. He may perform signs and wonders through you and give him glory if he does. Give him glory. He can and he does do that. But he will. He will as the church is faithful to proclaim boldly the message of the gospel. He will supernaturally raise the spiritually dead out of death into life. He will do that. A couple of questions for you as we close. Do you trust in and treasure this Christ do you know this Christ that Paul and Barnabas preached? 
Do you know the Christ who is the subject of the teaching of the Lord? Do you know the Christ who has decisively defeated sin, death, and hell on our behalf by means of becoming human while remaining truly God? Of living in perfect obedience to the Father, living the life that we cannot live Dying on the cross in our place and for our sins, being buried, being raised from the dead in glorious power, bodily, appearing to many and ascending to the right hand of the Father, where now he sits and prays on our behalf, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Do you know this Christ? Have you placed your trust in this Christ like the governor in the text? If you'd like to talk more about what it means to trust in Christ, repenting of your sins and turning to Christ in faith. And we would love to visit with you after the service. Stick around. And as you walk out of one of these doors, take a left. On the right-hand side out there is a room called the Crossroads. I mentioned it earlier. Please go in there and visit with us so we can come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn what it means to give our allegiance to and follow King Jesus. And then secondly, Second question I want to wrap up with is this. How will you participate in taking the gospel to the nations? How will you participate in taking the gospel to the nations? To people who don't know Christ and to unreached people. People who will live and die. Never having heard the gospel. Never having met a Christian. Never having the opportunity to hear about a church unless God's people go. Every one of us, without exception, look, must be sharing Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. We're following Christ. What does that mean? We're trusting him. We're living in obedience to him by the power of the spirit of God, doubtless, which includes repentance, ongoing repentance, and we're sharing the message of Christ. So all of us are called to proclaim. Paul said, I believed, therefore I spoke. So if we trust Christ, we proclaim Christ. But it may be, it may be that the Spirit of God is calling some of you to go to a part of the world where there are unreached people. There are unsaved people in East Tennessee. Don't hear me say there aren't. But there are not unreached people in East Tennessee. Remember the distinction. God may call you to stay here and proclaim Christ. Up until the present, that's what he's called me to do. But I'll challenge you with something with which I was challenged recently. I was told with my wife, actually, that we would go that night and get on our knees together and ask Christ, will you send us to unreached people? And we did. We prayed it afresh. And meant it, I think. And want to mean it all the more. Every day. Christ, will you send us? If you will, we will go. Spirit of God, will you send us through the church? He will call some of you. Some of us. To go. He'll call some of us to stay in support through prayer and finances 
but he's calling all of us to proclaim Christ wherever we are. We're giving our lives in service to something, friends. We're spending our energies on something. Probably many things, doubtless many of them good. What is it? What is it? I'm not suggesting that it must be missions to an unreached people group. Namely, Christ is calling every single one of you to go to an unreached people group. Now, he could do that, I suppose. Wow. I'm not suggesting that's what he's doing. But I am suggesting that what this text reminds us of is that we ought to be spending our energies on making Christ known wherever he calls us. With open hands, open lives, an open bank account, an open job. Nate Saint, who died as a martyr and missionary, one of the heroes of the faith, to a remote tribe in Ecuador. Known, this tribe is known on the popular level as the Alka tribe. It's not the Alka tribe. I'll mispronounce whatever it is properly. So I'm not going to do that. Nate Saint issued a warning on how we spend our lives once. He said this, quote, People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. May God give us grace, church, every single one of us, to spend our lives making Christ known. Let's pray. Father, First, we thank you for the grace that has come to us and rescued us out of our folly, darkness, and death. Grace that is given to us through Christ. Grace that doesn't merely grant forgiveness, but transformation and life eternal. We also say afresh, together, and friends, don't pray this if you don't mean it. We say afresh, Together. If you want us to go to an unreached people, we will go. Our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so, Father, through Christ and by the Spirit, call some from this church afresh. We have a history of this kind of mercy in this church. Call some afresh to go and call others to send, to release. Call all of us, however, whether we go or whether we stay, to spend our lives making Christ, your son, our king, known. In his name, And for his sake we pray and all God's people said.